Hey guys, this is Hunter Levine, and thank you for listening to the Captain's Collective Podcast. Brought to you by Skinny Water Culture, Hell's Bay Boatworks, Turtle Box Audio, and Orvis Fly Fishing. Love it or hate it, film and media has been a shaping force in the outdoor world. From books to articles, films, and TV shows, people have been able to see, learn, and experience the woods and waters of the world. In today's episode, I sit down with filmmaker Jamie Howard and discuss his career in outdoor media, the stories of some of his most iconic movies like Chasing Silver and In Search of a Rising Tide, and how he went from being a kid in Virginia, running around recording audio, birds, and other sounds in nature, to working with some of the best anglers on the water around the world. We also discuss how he has been influenced by projects as an angler, his care for conservation, the tricky and tantalizing balance of showing fisheries without exploiting them, and how he has learned to work amongst the chaos that comes with production. I really enjoyed hearing Jamie's perspective and think that you will find this conversation full of insights and knowledge. Thank you for listening. This is the Captain's Collective. I'll say it's anything you choose, I think it picks you. You know, it's genetic. Let everything else stop in the world and just be quiet. And then it's amazing where your mind goes at that point um, and where it doesn't go. And sometimes just that quiet space is, is what we need, and especially in this day and age. You have a fly rod in your hand. It's this tool that takes you to beautiful places. You meet hopefully wonderful people. And it's just this cherry on top of this outdoor adventure. When the fish is coming, that shot within a shot, that timer start. No one else knew anything anyway, and you just might definitely making it up if you're going along. But so what Grandpa and Dad would tell me is like, all right, where's an old big trout laying out there? Where's his shaving cream on the water? Where's he been shaving this morning? Let's so look for his shaving cream on the water, and that's where he's gonna be. Hey, Jamie, thanks so much for hanging out with us and making time to hop on the podcast. I've enjoyed a lot of your films. I think I've seen four or five of them over the years, and I'm excited to dig into how you came about making them and then also how they've impacted the industry. But before we get into all of that, I'd love to hear about how you first got connected to the outdoors and also how you got into filming. So I grew up actually down a long driveway in Virginia, which which helped. I was out in um, in a sort of a rural environment. Um, it wasn't sort of a rural. I was in Charlottesville, Virginia, so it wasn't dead rural. But my parents had a bit of land, and that was enough to just send us out the back door and mm-hmm. to just fend for ourselves. And my father was um, pretty deep into the outdoors. I mean, you know, hunting and fishing. And so it just sort of came around to how much of that I was going to attach myself to. Did you do a lot of stuff photography-wise growing up, or was it always just kind of going out and hunting and fishing, and did the photography video piece come later? Well, I think when you are creatively inclined, um, you're always doing something. And so I remember when I first was given a tape recorder, it was actually like an actual press press record type of <laughs> tape recorder. <laughs> and I remember thinking, this is about the coolest thing I've ever seen. And I can't remember where I was. <laughs> I think I was maybe at, at a friend's house or something. And I th- instantly started recording everything. And then um, that, you know, could have been anything. Could have been people talking. 
you know, everything was fascinating. Just the fact that you could record things and, you know, bird sounds. It didn't really mm. collide with the outdoors um, for a little while. I, I got my first uh, camera um, a few years later. But, um, yeah, I was always taking photographs or recording um, and sort of noticing. My father was a, was a, was a painter, not necessarily to support himself, but he, he, has a, he had a lot of shows and sold art. And so there's definitely something that got passed on where we, we, the, um, you know, the creativity was sort of a you mm. know, blessing and a curse. Nothing I could do but get, to get around it. Yeah, so w- what was that season of life like when you first started taking photographs and maybe some videos of, of outdoor things? Well, the sort of the nexus of it was the the first filming, so to speak, was was really way later. Um, you know, I had always been taking little sort of I don't know what they were, maybe um, sixteen millimeter with my father on streams, but when I first um, got into it for for real. Um, it was it was several years later, but it was those early days with the with the, with those little film cameras and things, you know. And then we'd put them up on the wall in the living room, and we'd watch them. And I think we'd play the the stereo in the background because it didn't, you know, it was just they, there was no sound was attached to the one the, to the mm-hmm. camera he had. And we would just sit there and we'd put them up on the wall and we and we'd play them. And they were very rudimentary, but it was a. Uh, it was must see TV <laughs> even back even back then. I'd got was that you and your father uh, making little films together? He would make them and share them, and then sometimes I would get to squeeze off a little bit too. But you know, again, I was always playing catch up. You know, they were out into the streams. You know, he's he was very deep into the fly fishing world. You know, fishing with all sorts of you know people of note, and and I would just sort of sort of pick up the scraps here and there where I could figure out what was going on. Um, and you know, to be honest, it didn't really take for a while. I mean, I think he had me fishing pretty early, but but the genuine interest in it took a while to take. Like any kid, you're, you're not going to immediately do whatever your parents are doing for a while until it just, you know, mm-hmm. starts, becomes inevitable. For you, when when did it take? When, when did it really hit? Oh, man, I would say, I thinking when things became very special, in other words, we were always fly fishing. When they became very special, I think it was the first trip out west, and I was wandering around um, Silver Creek with my father, and he had a special way of catching fish off the top. That um, I think it just changed everything. I don't. Th- I don't think I've. I don't think I've ever missed a summer um, since I was about maybe fifteen. Um, going out west, it sort of changed everything at that point. I really, suddenly fish became, you know. Uh, a dominant vision in my head, you know, throughout the year, I knew I had to get back and into that landscape. Hmm. What, what about it do you feel like really drew you in? Well, if you've ever spent any time out West and I, and I always sort of, I don't talk about it a a lot because I feel like it's, there's enough people going already. Right. (laughs) But the truth is, is when you step into that Vista and the world opens up, um, it's a totally different psychological experience, and I think fly fishing is a way to kind of connect with the environment. It's it's our all it's our little secret, you know. You you wave that wand and it goes into the water, and you're not just looking at the environment, but you're suddenly connected to it. And that's that's the little secret of all of this is where we get to go to re- pretty places. They don't always have to be gorgeous, but but when we find an environment we like, we're actually connecting with it. We're actually 
viscerally connecting with it and that the fly rod allows you to do that and i think that's mm. that's what it was just seeing the water flowing through those creeks and seeing the fly going through there and looking around and seeing the peaks and thinking okay i'm having a you know a transcendental experience here and um i would be hard to hard pressed to ignore that that this is going to make a major impression mm-hmm. yeah for you too i know that you were involved in marketing and then you first broke into creating fishing films. Could, could you tell us a little bit more about how all that evolved to be? Well, the, I was working in New York, which, you know, in its own way was kind of counterintuitive to someone who loves the outdoors. And I know I've heard many people in the outdoors who've had to endure it. I mean, I remember Flip Pallet talking about it as a banker. He just would stare out the window. And I know we wanted him to come up for running the coast. And he had told Paul, look, you know how much I hate, hate New York. But I found a way to just make it work. I got an apartment on the water after a few years of hardcore suffering, made enough, made enough to be able to look out on the, um, the Hudson. And so that was sort of my, my cheat, so I could be on the water and then um, would go to Central Park. And then essentially what I was doing was writing. I was a copywriter and, and director. And um, we had about 30 seconds to tell a story on TV, and that became sort of my discipline, my training ground. Um, for it all and then you know at one day um, just to sort of fast forward uh, 9-11 hit we all remember that well and that changed everything mm. just it just changed everything I was mm. out the door and um, honestly I never I never came back my my mother actually was in my apartment um, the day of 9-11 I was down um in Virginia, but they, she never missed an opportunity to get to New York. She loved it. She spent her childhood there. And so the moment I was out, she was right there. And, and like a good mother, she was, you know, putting wet towels into my window to stop the smoke from coming in, really having no idea exactly what was going on, going on, mm-hmm. you know, taking pictures of the hole, reporting to me, you know, do you think this is a problem? And me always having a good, you know, eye for disaster said, no, no, it's, it's no problem. There's no, I don't think it's a mm-hmm. big deal. <laughs> <laughs> which turned out to be a little under a bit of an understatement. So anyway, um, made a big career change after that point. And, um, yeah, w- when you think of that and you, you talked about, you know, that was really when a big change came for you, what exactly changed? Like what, what thought process or what kind of resulted from that? Well, it was a leap into the unknown. You know, I'm getting into a moving van in the snow and, um, packing up, you know, f- next to a smoking crater and thinking, you know, it's time to make a change. And, um, you know, I knew that the first step was going to be to try to apply this skills that I'd learned in New York and to take it to the outdoors. And, and that's when I probably within, I don't know, it wasn't that long. It might've been within six months I was down in, in the Bahamas. Um, and I had invited someone down there to shoot with me as well. And, um, he got delayed by an ice storm. Because every production, if anyone works in production, they'll tell you they've all got stories. Nothing ever goes according to plan. Um, mm. So I was just down there um, shooting, waiting on him, and uh, thinking, I don't know what I've gotten myself into and how this is ever going to turn into anything, but we're going <laughs> to we're going to do this. And um, we just, yeah, went just went and started to f- create a small film about bone fishing and hoped that it would find an audience. And um, unlike advertising where it was done in 30 seconds, I really was excited about the idea of telling something that was longer than 30 seconds. Yeah. And maybe for those that haven't seen In Search of Rising Tide, could you just talk about how that idea came to be and then what it looked like for you to chase that idea down? 
Yeah, so I had this idea that this was a truly special place and that these guys were about as good as you can get. And that's all about I knew that I knew. And I thought, well, if I'm going to do my first film subject, why not just, you know, go to some place that's going to be an eye-opener to so many people? And so, you know, after a lot of time, back and forth and logistical um, work and um, agreement from uh, Andy Smith and Charlie Nemore, and I don't know if you've seen it, but they were a pretty good team together. And and they had a um, pretty good rapport. And, and I just said, look, you guys, we're going to keep this easy. We're just going to you know, follow you around and you do what you do. And we're just going to let fate take us wherever it goes. And, um, you know, I really, at that point had no sponsor, had no outlet for it. And I took, I mean, it took a long time. That thing was only 22 minutes and it probably took me better part of a year or so to get it done. And then maybe another year or so to get anyone even to look at it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you just, so you produced the film yourself and spent basically two years getting everything ready and then you went to present it and say, hey, who who wants to be a part of this? Is that kind of it? It started as yeah. your own project? Yeah, and- I didn't know what I was doing, um, which is always, I guess, the story of life. If you have a voice in your head that says do it and you don't know what you're doing, you just you just go with it. So, you know, for me, that this is what this whole journey has been about. You know, I would say I'm... Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's got to have one thing in their life that they're fearless about. It can't be everything. But, you know, for, for me, I guess this was it. This was my area to be fearless. So I would just, you know, make the investment, take the risk. And then, you know, people would, would make fun of me. I remember when I first cold called some networks and they would say, well, what are you trying to be? Like the Martin Scorsese efficient? And I was like, I thought about yeah. it. I was like, yeah, that's a good question. Is that what I'm trying to do? That seems silly. But I would... I can't exactly remember the day it happened, but someone looked at it and was like, huh, okay, well, this, we could actually, this would actually probably rate pretty well. This, has got, this is like eye candy. There's a story. And it was only one of them. It was only 22 minutes, so there was no real business model for it. I mean, it, it, it wasn't like it was a long series you could attach a sponsor to. Mm-hmm. But um, they were willing to show it, and then um, just to kind of add a little more texture to this, this was this was an era where YouTube was just sort of cat videos or a place to host a little video for <laughs> your website, but it wasn't really a going concern. And so, you know, content at that point was still pretty minimal. And, you know, to create this was, I still had an opportunity to create content. There was a thing called DVDs back then. <laughs> and so hmm. people people found this little thing and they liked it and they, and they decided not only from um, the airing on TV, but people wanted to own it, which I thought was pretty cool. And um, in, in around what year is this all happening? Oh, man. That was probably around 2003, I'm going to say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, 2003, because I guess that at that time, really there there wasn't much out there, a couple TV shows, few few films here or there. What when you after you you shot everything and you said you just wanted to kind of see where fate would take it? What did you end up? What did you end up really capturing that you felt like was really worth putting out there? Well, to be honest, the the Bahamian um, bonefish culture had had really only been seen from the other side. It was usually like a white guide would go down and they would have somebody in the back of the boat, and they would get a little airtime and be charming, but it was never the camera was never turned around. So this was actually a different look altogether from their point of view. You know, they were not only pulling the boat, but they were fishing. And they were not only talking about, you know, 
how good the fishing was. They were talking about the genesis of fishing and, and the flies that they invented to do it. And holy smokes, those guys can cast. Um, they used, I remember in the evenings, I think Lefty Cray was down there one time when I was fishing, and they would, they would, do, they would be casting out on the deck, and their, their loops would go at the exact angle of the roof, be a teeny tiny loop, you know, like an inch or two, and it would just zip right in the line of the roof line behind them. So it wouldn't hit it, but it would also go at the exact same angle of the loop. And they, they could cast for days, but then they could see anything. And I thought, you know, this is, this is pretty unique. So the story of Rising Tide essentially showed not only how they approached it and the culture of it, and they lived and breathed it from, from you know, childhood, but also how they, you know, were passing it down and how their fathers had done it. And so... The fish were were nicely sized. There was one very large one at the end, but that turned out to be like many things, part of the story, not the only story. And so, mm-hmm. and I think we had a soundtrack by a group called Slightly Stupid, and I don't know if I could get them today. So a lot of things sort of fell in place. I just asked them naively if they would participate, and so we had a interesting um, contribution from them as well. So that that little piece, that little twenty two minute piece, I think was integral to sort of starting the idea of what, you know, fishing films. Because um, at that point, it was sort of fly fishing the world, um, which was a different model. I think Spanish Fly may have been around, and, and Flip Show, which was great, was probably airing at that point, too. And, um, of course, and then the standards, like uh, Jimmy Houston and Bill Dance. But just these, but mm-hmm. a little nugget like that, had no one had tried to do that. This was way before the film fly fishing film tour or anything like that or you know anything that was um not just pure series yeah and you had said something i thought was interesting you were talking about how you didn't have this huge game plan you just knew that there was something that you wanted to capture about what was happening down there and you went down there and just kind of figured it out as you went along i've heard a lot of different guests and even myself have experienced that some and one of the things that's interesting too is how a lot of times what you fall into shapes you how do you feel like that trip, that movie uh, that you first did shaped you in the long run? Well, you know, it's hard to know sort of from a helicopter view when you're, when you're in the moment, right? And I think essentially that, po- that entire process from, you know, moving to Los Angeles, I was actually using an editor that had worked with me on some commercials who was way overqualified. I think she had edited with Oliver Stone, <laughs> and I was getting her in the evenings to work with me, try to teach her what the hell fishing was, and that was pretty funny. But I think the whole entire thing was sort of slowly creating this, I don't know, a new perspective on life where there was going to be not only some self-sufficiency, but that, that, that the challenge was going to have to be embraced as a part of life. You know, in New York, our challenge was basically the competition. They'd throw us into a, you know, what is it, two two enter, one leaves or something. <laughs> they say it, mm. the Thunderdome, but I, it was sort of like that. But this was more like it, just this model of, of self-sufficiency and, and believing that like a salmon, you're just going to keep going upstream and upstream and you're just going to keep going. <laughs> and, um, you know, there'd be some intermittent, re, you know, positive reinforcement along the way. And I think that sort of shaped this sort of feeling where you can, you can take risks and it's not going to, you know, ruin your life. Mm. And you had talked about when you were over in advertising and working in New York that 
there was a, a hustle season when you first started your career that I think a lot of people can relate to. What do you feel like you took from that season of life and brought with you into your filmmaking today? Well, of course, you know, when you look back, you don't really know. You have to think about it, but you can only look at the person you were. And, you know, I think the lesson might not have been that different than the, you know, independent film production lesson, which is that you're going to get beaten up and you're going to keep going. And I think that, um, you know, there were definitely times in New York when I thought, this is this is lunacy. I mean, there's no reason I should be doing this, you know. Like, we'd take lunch at, you know, 10 p.m. or, you know, you know, the first apartment I had, I think, was, you know, the size of my, you know, I don't know, bedroom, period. And I think, it, you, but you learn a lot of things about the world, right? And that's, that's I think, that makes you better, you know, because every time you, you go further and further out into the world, you're going to have just a clearer view of, of how to make a picture, how to tell a story. I mean, if someone says a place, you should have a picture in your mind. If someone says, you know, West Village, or if someone says, um, you know, Point Doom, or, you know, all these places, you have a picture in your mind, so you can sort of communicate with the world better after if you travel around and push yourself. But I think the New York experience was good. I think I don't think I was going to be a long-term person. Though. I don't think I would have survived 20 years there, yeah. and which some people can do. They, it's their, it's in their blood. Yeah, I can totally understand that as well. And it seems a, a little odd that somebody who grew up in Virginia would be so connected to so many saltwater films. What what do you look for when you're trying to figure out what you want to go film and, and capture? How do you pick all that out? Yeah, I think, you know, there's there's a there's none of this is sort of overly strategic at first. You just you just sort of figure out, you know, that suddenly, hey, this is working. And I think when I was at a film festival in Jackson Hole and HD was just coming out, and I thought to myself, well, "We've done Bonefish. Imagine, imagine seeing a tarpon run, jump out of the water in, in HD." And that's just a, that's just that simple of an idea. Mm. And um, and I thought, well, it, that's not really what I would call a great game plan to to, to go mm. and take on an entire project just with that premise. And when I went down to the Keys the first time, um, if I could jump ahead, maybe. I don't know what, mm -hmm. what timeline we're on here, but um, it was um, really with that idea. And I went down a couple of times, and um, I thought that the um, the overall project was going to sink or swim, literally, by whoever wished to participate. And I came in cold. I mean, real cold. They didn't know me from Adam. And some people just kind of gave me the cold shoulder, and some people just took a took a leap of faith. And um, you know, hats off mm -hmm. to them because it. Uh, seemed to seem to work out okay yeah I was curious I mean so you're talking about the the first film you did was chasing silver with with tarpon right right, right. yeah t tell me about how how that all came to be because obviously you ended up linking with Andy Mill who is one of the most prolific you know modern day guys involved in tarpon right. fishing how did all that kind of unfold well, if you've spoken to Andy he'll probably tell you I, I taught him everything he knows about tarpon fishing right <laughs> <laughs> but uh you know it's the, the entire process everywhere I go just starts with um networking you know I start asking questions so I, I ask you know hey who would you fish with hey who's your idea of the best person and then hey who would you fish with and it's this weird thing where it just it's this matrix 
and his and I to be honest because you know this is what we're we're here to do to be honest I didn't want Andy in the first one because I thought well I don't want a celebrity in this thing <laughs> I want this thing mm. I want Howard Films <laughs> to be all about the the best of the best on their day authentic blah 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 you know what an idiot right <laughs> like <laughs> mm-hmm. of course I want Andy but you know you don't know these things so you have to kind of go down the road of discovery and at that point um you know the joke was later he he, he said he got maybe got more recognition for chasing silver than what he'd been doing previously so we both took a leap of faith and it worked out and i think that the discovery process was sort of aided by those as i said who, who wished to participate mm-hmm. and um as I, I found people just through word of mouth when i think about it you know i, I didn't do much other than call people and tell them I was coming you know I did not have deep roots in that in that world and when you go to Almorada when you arrive in Almorada without deep roots um, you are an outsider you are Mm -hmm. might as well be walking into a small southern town and you know asking for a a beer at the bar I mean you're just you know Mm -hmm. who's this guy I mean because it's territorial by nature I mean there's only so many feet of water and so many fish and it's sort of like a surf break you know you you know, if you weren't here before, don't don't think of jumping on this wave. So it took a little while to um, to to sort of break through there a little bit. Yeah, and I mean, there's something about television and film with fishing that is always kind of a, a give and take or a balancing act of people trying to capture and show something without showing too much. And there's always people who are really excited to see the sport grow, and there's always people who are really upset to see information go out did, did you have to navigate that strategically or was that just something that you just kind of let the chips fall where they may as far as the controversy yeah. of filming well I actually like that question a lot because I think it's sort of interesting to think that my ethos is actually against <laughs> against sharing too much overdoing and pushing so the amount of time and effort spent on um not overdoing where we were fishing, what we were doing. And, to, and that's why you asked about saltwater. It's one of the reasons I do saltwater more because I feel like it's harder to blow up a spot. I mean, it's not impossible. But mm-hmm. um, if I went to do freshwater, I think there would be, you know, people would walk right to it. Whereas if you need a guide and there's a certain, you know, there's a certain filter on how many people can go to a certain spot. And so I thought that would help because I think as anyone who fishes, we all know there it's we want people into the into the industry, but there's only so much um, space at one time. And the beauty of it is, is and people will say, there's an endless amount to discover, and there really is. If you do the hard work, you know these guides they they're finding new spots every day. But I really was always sensitive about blowing up a spot or trying to you know exploit mm-hmm. anyone. And so we always were very cognizant of: Are you happy with this? Are we happy with this? And of course the you know, the most obvious example of that would be Location X where we were invited to shoot somewhere and the whole idea was that, um, you know, the, the spot was not, it wasn't about the spot so much as it was about the fishing. Of course, that took on a whole life of its own, um, mm-hmm. which I hadn't even planned on. But, um, but yeah, at the very root of it, it was really more about fishing than it was trying to, you know, um, promote one fishery. How do you handle pushback from people who are upset that these films are being made? Do you try to explain to them what you're doing, or do you just kind of focus on who's enjoying them? <laughs> well, you can't 
um, gosh, I mean, anytime you're in, they call, I don't know what you call it, the public eye, public, I mean, there's always going to be um, pushback. And there's always going to be, you know, you. hey, he said he tied that fly. Well, uh, okay, so in one of our films, I got an email from someone saying, you know, how could you say that? Well, I didn't say it, they said it. And I think they were saying they designed it or they tweaked it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, once the semantics are out, so you're going to, you know, when you get that many people listening or looking, you're going to have pushback. So what I, my sort of intention is always to respond immediately. You know, if I have, mm-hmm. if I can, if I have an answer, I'll respond immediately. In fact, I'll call them. Sometimes people are surprised. I would get some negative comments from people about things, and I would literally find their email or phone number, and I would just call them. And it usually went pretty well. I mean, if you actually take the time to call someone, it's actually there. They don't seem to be as mad once you start talking to them personally. And um, and I think for the most part, um, we we walk the line pretty well. I mean, I think we. We may have brought a few more people down to the keys, unfortunately, than some people would have liked. But then again, that also mm-hmm. brought an evolution of the sport, perhaps as well, the way the guides mm-hmm. are approaching it. Um, you know, these modern guides are something else. And um, yeah. yeah, so we, we, we've dealt with it. Um, you know, I sometimes it, it's not always us that, that, that's talking about the spots, actually. It's, it's, um, it's other people that are doing the promoting of the spots. We don't, we don't, we mm-hmm. don't ever do that. Yeah. And I mean, I've talked to you enough to know that you're pretty thoughtful with how you try to go about all that in, in today's world where there's so, it's so much easier to make a a short film or a video or et cetera. And then to put it out there to the world, what would you say is the wrong way to go about it? Um, when you say wrong way, you mean like something that would be exploitive or something exploitative type of thing? Yeah. Yeah, I, I can't. I don't think I'd be able to comment. Uh, I'm not definitely not the judge, jury, executioner for, for the film world. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, have you seen yourself? You seen like what would be like an example of something that you've seen that you're or a category? You mean like in terms of like how spots are shown or? Um, yeah, I, I think that there's. I just hear a lot of conversation. Everything from people who just think that we we shouldn't have social media. We shouldn't even make videos movies Mm -hmm. to to the other side of the extreme which is everything needs to be documented everything's going to be uploaded with no you know concern about it to people blurring out backgrounds i mean this conversation around how to present media about something we love like fishing hunting and then to do so in a way that is conscientious of that is a pretty pretty big conversation Mm -hmm. that's happening today i was curious just because you've been in it so long what you think are some good guidelines for people to consider. Right. Well, you know, of course, for those who are old enough, they, they can remember what life was like before the Internet. And I think there's a lot of um, reverence for the idea that you could either find it through a magazine article or word of mouth it was pretty cool. I mean, you felt like when you arrived somewhere, you felt pretty good about it. I mean, the parking lot wasn't jammed. You kind of looked over and smiled at someone else. They'd sort of found it just like you had. Um, I think the immediacy now of, you know, if someone catches something here and it's on the internet immediately, um, has changed all that. And so I think there is a new consciousness around that. And I think the media that, that circulates now, um, you know, if you were to just promote a spot, that wouldn't be wise. And, and of course, you know, just the idea of having to sell, (laughs) I, 
you know, since we've never really had major underwriters, we've, but I, I would imagine that there's probably also a little bit of pushback on the idea that suddenly you're selling something in the middle of it. You know, you're using, you're talking mm -hmm. about something may seem a little artificial. You're selling something. And of course that's the way it's done. I mean, that's the way it should be done uh, from a business standpoint, you know, but, um, you know, I haven't, I just, I can't speak too much to the wrong way, but I can only speak to the right way, which is essentially trying to go into a project with the idea that you, you un really understand your subject. So you're not just driving over it. You know, I feel like if, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of people can walk into something and say, okay, point the camera there, get me the fish. I want a grand slam by noon. You know, you've got to, you've got to lay back and get your mojo right. And you've got to, you know, you've got to respect the fishery and the, and the guide. And, you know, they might not always be sort of forthcoming about the experience they just had with a film crew, but sometimes it might feel like, you know, the circus just came to town and, mm -hmm. you know, they were not sort of really in tune with how long it might take to catch a fish or how long it might take with, the, if the weather rolls in to just have to, to wait for it and to, mm -hmm. you know, to embrace the process. I think, I think warts and all is a good thing, good process too. And I think we brought that a little bit to the table before it became, a big deal. In other words, if someone fell off a boat, we'd keep it in. If someone dropped the mic, we'd keep it in. Someone, lo mm -hmm. someone lost a fish, we'd keep it in. I think there was a sort of a gloss to television that we tried to pull back a little bit. Um, I think that helps too. That sort of that 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 level of reality people appreciate. Yeah, I, I like that. Yeah, I like that term gloss because going back and watching your films, I think I think Chasing Silver was the first one. I've I've watched almost all of them at, at this point. Um, and I definitely see a, a rawness that seems like it's trying to capture the ups and downs, the people capture, I guess, more than just where is this happening and how do I do it myself? Like, and I think maybe that's what gets some people frustrated when you look at somebody who's maybe over advertising or just not subtly advertising. I think most people just kind of kind of eye roll or they're not upset about it. They're just like, Oh, this is just the info commercial. Right. But when people do feel like something is exploiting a resource, that's when it goes from being an eye roll to actually pretty upsetting. And yeah, I think that's just something that, um, I think that's just a conversation that has to happen. It has to be fleshed out. People have to enter that conversation in the industry. Just as, like I said, it's just so much easier now. You know, we have cameras that, on our phones that can shoot better quality than some of the stuff being filmed 20 years ago. And so I think that's, that's just a, the same way that the film industry evolves. I guess the conversation has to evolve too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you figure every, everyone's got a camera now, right? Everyone's, everyone's a cameraman. So there's no, no fish that's probably not going to find its way <laughs> onto pixels, you know, and there's mm -hmm. no spot that's probably hasn't been photographed. So we're living in an age where sort of everything is shared and you're hoping the downside of that is, is obvious, you know, there's, there's mm -hmm. but the, the upside hopefully is that, you know, maybe there'll be some honesty shared too, as people try to deal with things like, you know, conservation and regulations mm -hmm. that they'll, that the word will get out on that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, and obviously I have a podcast, so I'm, I'm involved in creating content myself. It's not as likely to be under the, the gun for exploitation but I do think that it's it's all a part of trying to have these conversations and film these things create these things in a way that 
um, hopefully the, the waters and woods and things that we love are, are left better than what we found them. You said something earlier that I thought was really interesting because you're talking about, you know, you, you would go down and you would just ask around, who would you want to fish with? And you, you try to figure out who's some of the top tier, kind of some of the best guys to involve in the film projects. What is, what does it look like to try to figure out kind of who's on the top of their game? And could you also speak to what it's like working with those kind of highly dedicated people? Yeah, so one of the thoughts I had is if when someone's just being themselves, um, they can be um, really a featured character. You know, if I put a script in their mouth, um, I mean, I've some people I've worked with, you'd be amazed how different things look the moment they suddenly have to work with a script or suddenly have to sell something. If you just, you know, people forget at some point when it, when they're when they've got a passion and they're good at something, the camera just disappears. It's at mm-hmm. some point. And my intention with with the filming was to just sort of almost disappear. We, we just wanted to put people mm-hmm. sort of in the best conditions on the best day, and then we just really wouldn't impose anything. We would just hang in there. And the way we'd find, quote, the best, you know, I remember was just by giving it enough time. It's amazing how with word of mouth which, what you can do. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I would just take notes and then if a name would come up more than once, I would, I would check it. And then if we would talk to someone who would mention something and then you'd hear an anecdote and then, you know, at some point you might just do it on the ground. You're, you're on the ground and you ask is X or X or Y, you know, in town and we go over and talk to them. And, um, it's, it's just very much, <laughs> very much done, um, on the ground you know we we you can only control but so much before you arrive and we definitely people do know that we're coming when we're coming but after that we tend to try to shoot as much as we possibly can um outside of the original plan so we're kind of Mm -hmm. exploring you know yeah and and you've had the opportunity to be around a lot of great anglers that have spanned across a couple different types or, or genres if we want to use that word um, of fishing, what tips could you pass along that you've seen kind of some of these gray anglers hold that maybe people could, could implement mm-hmm. into their own life? Well, you know, the great angler, um, debate goes on and on, you know, who really is the great angler? And I guess, you know, you can, do you pr- prove it through tournaments? Do you prove it through the fish you catch or do you just, no one knows about you, but people, you know, already know through, you know, intimate relationships. But, Obviously, um, like anything, intellect comes into it. People that are good at anything become a little obsessive, and so they are, they'll be tying all the time, they'll be tweaking all the time, they'll be changing all the time. So the great ones are never complacent. They're going to be always working to get better. They're, they're, they're never going to get um, stuck in one spot, and that's because the passion is really the key in this entire thing. You know, everyone can be passionate, but as we know, um, we all know people that we think are exceptional fishermen. And you know, what what made them that way, or, or an exceptional guide. I mean, uh, you know, Steve Huff was was the first um, guide that a lot of people name because he he was sort of the Chuck Yeager. He was willing to go higher and farther. You know, and I and I don't know. He's probably got a saint for a wife, but he was, you know, he was out there till all hours every day, and his clients absolutely loved him for it. I mean, they absolutely felt like there was no end to mm-hmm. the commitment. There was no end to the amount of passion 
And I think the great anglers are all like that. I mean, I think, you know, when you look at the people that have been most successful in the Keys, they are putting the fish first. And, you know, I, I can tell you when we've been on the boat, um, you know, with some, some of the best, they, there's a confidence there. They're not, um, they're not worried so much because their passion has taken over for everything else. And so they have sort of a tunnel vision. I mean, they're going to, they're going to fish and they're going to catch that fish and it's going to happen. And it's, and it's, mm. and it's going to be, it could be now, it could be three in the morning, but it's going to happen. And it's, it's that, mm. it's that positive thinking combined with sort of an obsessiveness. Mm. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know if there's a kind of a physical attribute, a talent that goes there, but there, there's probably a little bit of that too. I mean, a lot of these guys have had athletic backgrounds to some degree that helps with their mm -hmm. all day endurance. Yeah. Was there anything working with some of these different guys? I mean, it, there's, as I've watched the film over films over the last couple of years, I've just been amazed at some of the different names that you've got a chance to work with. Was there anything about any of them that surprised you that maybe you weren't expecting them to be like? So just to pick three examples, you know, from the first film rising tide with Andy Smith, um, you know, we had to fish in adverse conditions on the last day. And it was the type of thing where we couldn't even use the boat. He was off the boat, and he was at water level, and there was no sun. And he cast the line out, and without really saying anything um, or making a big deal out of it, because Bahamians are like that, he managed mm -hmm. to hook one of the biggest bonefish, you know, that I'd ever seen. The thing was 13, 14 pounds. And he just cast it out in a cloudy, windy, stormy day. And I still don't know how he did it. But, and those are the kind of things where you're just going along sort of with your mm -hmm. normal routine and they're already sort of, you know, at another level. He didn't say, oh my God, get ready, get the camera. He just kind of just sort of, and um, I remember with, in running the coast with, with Paul Dixon, he just said, you know, come on this day, come at this time. And the blitz will be at this time. Now, we were off by a day. I got seasick and uh, was almost throwing up on the first day. <laughs> Came back the next day. He was off by one day, and the blitz showed up. And we were knee-deep. I think um, that was the day Roger Waters was with us. And, um, you know, I was impressed that Paul could look on his calendar, pick the day and the time, and there was the fish. I think we had a wave rocked over the back of the boat and shorted out Roger's um, mic. And imagine he was sort of complaining about some heat in his pocket. And we were like, you know, didn't pay any attention. Meanwhile, we'd take it, one of the biggest rock stars in the world and like basically burned up his pants. <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and it was just, you know, it's just all chaos. It's always chaos out there, you know. And then, you know, and then, and then in the Chasing Silver series, you know, Andy and Tim were such a phenomenal um, duo that they managed to catch fish either in a rain, which was crazy, just from seeing like a, just the tiniest piece of a tarpon hmm. um, and and putting him in the air. And I'm thinking that's probably, at, you know, the old uh, 10,000 hours thing. I think that's that would be really tough to replicate. But that was a great, mm -hmm. that was another great um, adversity moment. Yeah, and you had mentioned, I, you, you just mentioned kind of the chaos, but you talked about how when you go on these big projects, nothing goes as planned. And I think that anybody who really, really 
pursue something like this, even whether they're an angler, a captain who's just trying to win a tournament or a captain who's just trying to make the best out of the day. I think everybody realizes that chaos is just a, a part of the process. It's you can't control weather. You can't control other humans. You know, there's a very limited uh, if you were to put everything in a circle uh, of what you can control and then you right. put everything outside of the circle, what you can't, it's, it's small. It's, but how do you work through the chaos and <laughs> just kind of learn how to, can you give yeah. some tips there? Just even in general, yeah. not just filmmaking. Well, a hundred percent likelihood of rain. In other words, a hundred percent likelihood of chaos. Um, if yeah. I look back on anything I ever did, I just wince when I think about it. You know, starting off with the ice storm at the beginning of Rising Tide to people, you know, not showing up, um, just didn't show up, you know, I don't know where they went. And then, you know, arriving in the Keys to shoot Chasing Silver in a hurricane and then other people not showing up and then other people deciding to move on from the project um, sort of midway through, then cameras not starting because of the humidity um, and us watching mm. some of the most beautiful footage we've ever seen in our lives and just standing there with the, with the camera in our lap, not filming. And everyone is a sort of a deadly awkward silence that sort of, I felt like it was, could be felt across the flats of the keys. <laughs> we were in the lower keys and I was, I think I was with Tom Rowland at that point. And, I, and he and I always joke about that. I remember the camera was just sitting in our laps and he was, no one was really saying anything because <laughs> there wasn't much to say. We were waiting for the uh, humidity light to go off. And it went on just enough in time where you see that first roll in the beginning of Chasing Silver with, and he's fishing with um, Fitz Coker. You see that roll right in front of the camera. And, and Tom was like, man, I don't know if anyone's got that shot before. And I was like, that's about, that was about five seconds after the camera finally turned on. Um, and, you know, it just goes on and on. We did the worm hatch. With Tom, uh, weather was so bad that his kids were actually uh, in the stripping baskets during that scene. <laughs> they could, wow. they couldn't actually get. But we finally had to put them in there. <laughs> and I was like, "Well, we got to film," you know. It just, it's just pure chaos. And then you've got to manage your data. You've got to manage your footage among all of that. And it's sort of going. You know, we have we've got batteries that we. I remember pulling the flats in Nantucket and looking over. And when Todd changed the battery, we looked down. It's nice, clear, beautiful, flat. And what do we see at the bottom? We saw a battery for the red camera at the bottom. And we just sort of looked at each other. And, I, and it's like, I don't know, what is that, $500? And, and, and how are we going to still run the camera? <laughs> and so, <laughs> wow. you know, FedEx and a day off and, you know, just, but yeah. And so I guess if there's any lessons from all this, you, you go into these shoots knowing that you're going to have to build an extra time. And then I guess if I was going to give away a secret, it would be that I don't fish on shoots. And that's really hard because most people that film fishing content are true lovers of fishing. And, um, you know, we did, we did running the coast. Um, that was about four years I had to take off. I mean, I might have cast once per, per visit. But um, I just believe that you have to stick to that that rule. So that was brutal. Hmm. Yeah, that was that was rough. Well, 
Yeah, that's that's helpful. If it's okay with you, I have a long little list of rapid fire questions. They don't have to be very rapid, but they're a little little less connected. Sure. Um, so one of the things that I think is interesting about, and one of the reasons I wanted to interview you was because in a world of what I, what I feel like is short-term projects, um, you've done a lot of long-term projects. Like, you know, you just alluded to four years, uh, you know, what, what, what about it has drawn you to doing such long projects? Is that something that you sought out or did it just happen that way? Right. So my non rapid fire answer to a... (laughs) And non-fast shoot would be that uh, I went in naively thinking that I could shoot that movie in a season or a season and a half. And then the sort of the mm-hmm. perfectionist in me took over and I realized, you know, the, the boat guys are saying, what are you guys, you know, are you going to shoot the boat? Or, or then the shore guys are saying, what are you guys, just boat guys? And the fly guys saying, are you guys just conventional guys? And then, of course, we want the right angle on the blitz. And I was like, oh, that was pretty good year one. I could be a little better, better year two. Ah, oh, what about this new drone? And so... It evolved, and as the story of the striper evolved, which is its um, decline in population, um, I found that um, I would never be satisfied if I put out something that I didn't think was the best. And so I kept going back and kept going back and um, could sort of hear the voice in my head as I tried to manage all this data and try to keep it all under control um, knowing that I would, had spiraled out of control. And, um, you know, to this day, people still say, why, why didn't you shoot here? Why didn't you shoot there? Well, <laughs> you know, the move was already two hours and 40 minutes long. And frankly, I don't think you should have the camera on all those places. But for the most part, um, if you're going to do these things, um, you've got to decide if you're going to do long form what the story is you want to tell. And for me, I wanted it to be the the full story of the striped bass. And I felt like if I clipped it at all, people would sense it, you know, that we'd, we'd already established a, a sort of a, a marker in our other films. I did not realize how hard it was going to be to replicate that with the striped bass, you know, mm. um, just broke all the rules we had for amount of time we would shoot and amount of time we would devote to it. Just blew everything up. Yeah. Things often take me a lot longer than normal. Um, I don't think for me, it's cause I'm a perfectionist. I think I'm an optimist and I just always <laughs> think things are going to be easier. I jokingly tell my friends that on my tombstone, I told my wife, I, I legitimately want this on my tombstone. I just want underneath my dates just to say the phrase, I thought that would be easier. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Because I, that's, I always find myself just thinking, Oh, it just happened this way and this way. And, um, uh, it's, it's somewhere between I'm slow to learn the challenges and I'm optimistic that I'm going to do things better there's more quickly this time but but um, that's good I, I can totally relate that's good that means you'll go you'll go in without fear and you and you'll realize later how naive you were which is usually how i feel afterwards thinking oh man mm-hmm. if i had really thought about that, that that never would have occurred yeah and that's kind of full circle to what you were talking about that everyone should have an area that they're going to be fearless about mm-hmm. that you, if you know if you were to do it everywhere um you know that it would be you know, just pandemonium. Funny enough, my wife uh, had had once given me a Dove chocolate uh, uh, wrapper that said, "You can do anything, you just can't do everything." <laughs> yeah. And this was like in the crux of like, 
building a boat with Harry and hunting season and da, 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 all these, you know, and it's like, you can do anything. You just can't do everything. I, I think that's, that's a helpful lesson. I think in, in all of this, another question I had was you had talked about, um, you know, being connected with fly fishing. There's something about fly fishing that just tends to feel more connective. I, I, I can speak to that personally. I don't think that's a universal for everybody. And I still love fishing conventional, but I, uh, the question I have is, um, when filming or trying to capture, whether it's photography, film, whatever it may be, how do you try to stay connected while filming? Or do you just have to sacrifice your connectedness because in order to capture it? No, I think you can, you can be as much in the moment uh, when you're filming as you are when you're fishing. Um, there's, there's angles. I mean, I feel like there was one of the reasons that um, we were pretty well received when doing some of the earlier films is that the model for the fishing show had been some different angles that we were using. And we'd sort of brought people closer and brought and sort of flipped the script a little bit. And I think you can, you feel it. I mean, when you are not faking something, you are all collectively waiting for the same thing. You know, you're waiting for that tarpon to darken the water, you know, and everyone is in the same moment and the, and you're trying to stay focused. You know, if you see that striped bass coming along in Martha's Vineyard and hitting a popper, like everyone is quiet, everyone is looking and you are enjoying it just as much. I mean, you, you're not necessarily going to see it the same way an angler is. You're going to be looking through a <laughs> smaller lens, but you can still feel it. And you can feel when something's inauthentic. I mean, you can when you're trying to create these things, you have to have a sense of music, a sense of tone. In other words, what's, what's an authentic tone? And a sense of color, a sense of voice. Um, there's a million pieces, you know, who's your narrator? If you pick yourself, are you, are you a good narrator? Um, how's your voice? Is, does your voice tone match the background? You know, does the music match the scene? If you transition from scene to scene, does the color the the sound and the light and the edit all work so seamlessly that the viewer does not notice it and if it does notice it did you do that on purpose so anyway i could go on and on and on just some sort of mm -hmm. film principles and sort of you know cinema principles taken from advertising and thrown that into the fishing world but there's those kind of details um all add up you know and that that's to that connection um, so mm -hmm. sometimes you're trying to create that for the viewer so that they get it. Because I think one of the reasons I did this was because the magic that I was looking for that I felt when I went fishing, I couldn't get that. And so I thought I'm going to try hard to try to bring that, try to squeeze that into the, into the camera and into the edit. So people will, will be able to get, get excited about it and see, and, and see why we, why we do these things. Hmm. You know, you had talked about having some gear technical difficulties that caused you to miss some scenes. O over the years, I've had some of the best conversations I've had have not been recorded. I've either just had a gear malfunction at a certain part or I've not had the gear in front of me and we wrap up and, you know, we, we have a beer and I'm not recording. And, you know, I've found I've, I've learned how to live with the fact that I'm not going to capture every single great thing. But if I'm consistent and faithful enough, I'll, I'll get a lot of great things. What's the best thing that, that you missed when capturing over the years? Oh, something that didn't make it onto camera? 
yeah, something that you didn't have the the camera rolling or you had shut it off because it was the end of the day. Is there anything that's stuck well, like sticks out to you? That UFO that landed on um, Shark Key. We just had turned the camera off, and then, no, I'm just I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's funny because um, you know this is this is going to sound crazy, and this is going to be a disappointing answer. But for some reason, <laughs> we've managed to get what we've gone out for. Is that a horrible answer? We, I mean, no, no. I mean, it's crazy. But when I think about it, the pain co- has come um, because we've we've just not walked away. Now I can say that that we didn't get what we came for, but we just never left until we got it. So in in mm. that regard, I can remember, you know, a camera turning off, and you know, of course, you know, there there's the fish, or you know, a camera. Mike going into the water. Um, you remember see, remember Tom Rowland? I don't know if you remember that scene. He fell off the back of the boat, and and mm-hmm. we had planned to yeah. do interviews that day. But um, when I think of my wish list over the years of what what we wanted to get, um, we've been really lucky. I mean, I can say that um, there's been some times where the camera person was not me, but um, had a habit for, and I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> he called it reverse button syndrome, and he would always rec- he would pl- uh, record when he thought he was playing and playing when he thought he was recording. So there was a couple of monster bass in um, Bass the Movie that sort of we entered into the scene sort of at really weird times a couple of times, and the, the, the camera had not been recording, and so we had to make up for that sort of and that was you know that was a i'll just say that was an awkward moment um mm-hmm. you know where it was, it's unbelievably hot in the delta um and to realize that you're sitting there and you actually haven't um gotten the footage and there was one other time in the delta for just going to be telling tales of disasters uh i could tell i was filming uh bobby barrick in the Delta, and it was excruciatingly hot. I would say well over 100 on the on that boat, and not a wisp of wind. And he's a very intense guy, hell of a bass fisherman. And um, we had some had some logistical problems, and I went out with Bobby, and Todd went out to dump the footage and to recharge the batteries. Anyway, my camera went out. And truth be told, I did not have the guts to tell Bobby that my camera wasn't working anymore. So I sat there, and filmed him with a fake camera for like <laughs> for like an hour and a half. Sweat running down my <laughs> sweat running down my forehead. He is just jaw jawing away. He is firing casts, and I'm like, I can't possibly tell this guy that these guys that have flown all the way out here, asked for his undivided attention, have can't get their act together enough <laughs> to get the camera working. So we it was a lot of chaos on that. But you know, mercifully. By the time a battery came, I remember sort of surreptitiously texting, I need a battery. <laughs> By the time it came, I think was about the time we got some fish, but there was a lot of quality audio that will never see the light of day. Um, mm. Yeah, so it's, it's you know, it's endless chaos. I mean, just endless, you know. I mean, if you get around some people around production, they'll, you're, you're exactly right. It's, there's, nothing but tr- there's nothing but trouble there. You're trying to put all these, mm. you know, fish don't, have a casting sheet. They don't know when they're supposed to show up. You know, see, there's a lot of waiting around. Hmm. 
I have two more questions. My first one is, as you have done all these projects with all these different great anglers and all these different species of fish, what about you as an angler has changed over the years? Well, um, I, like all anglers, we, we, our casting hopefully gets a little better. Um, the way I, the way I pursue the fish, um, has, has, I've really been devoted to trying to getting fish on foot. Um, you know, and I think I've had to learn over the years as fly fishing has gotten more and more, uh, popular. I've had to get a little more creative, a little more ingenious on how I'm going to be able to still find fish with people now, you know, showing up everywhere. And so you've got to walk farther. Um, you know, I've sort of really committed myself to, you know, I was in New Zealand last year. I just said, well, I'm going to have to just going to, we're not going to use a guide, but we're just going to have to go farther. And, um, you know, when you go to Montana now, it's a, it's not off the beaten path anymore. So you're going to have to try other streams and Mm. you're going to have to, you know, use what might've been the tried and true fly, um, from years gone by might not be anymore because, you know, fish learn. I think people are still trying to figure out, solve that one. How the heck do fish learn? But they do. And I think everyone is trying to figure out, you know, season to season, what's the hot fly. And, um, there's some tried and true flies that will work year in and year out. I think I've got a couple of favorites that are just, I think some of the greatest flies ever tied. Um, but there are still, there is something to be said for figuring out each year the, what the fish doesn't know. Hmm. My, my last question is if you were going to go back to, to yourself when you first began filming with your dad and, and, and those streams, what advice would you go back and give yourself? Um, the advice for knowing what was cut, what lay ahead. Yeah. Just the advice of, uh, you're at the beginning of filming. What, what, what would you tell yourself? Uh, don't, don't panic. <laughs> I mean, when, there's going to be many opportunities when you're, you know, a lot of this stuff I had to, you know, there weren't sponsors, there weren't partners, there really wasn't even a team. And a lot of times I felt pretty much alone. And I think you you have to have faith in the process. I mean, it's sort of a cliche, but I think I would, I think I would just embrace that. Just tell, tell yourself, you know, you're doing this for a reason. And so just don't, don't, uh, don't doubt yourself. You know, you're, 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 you're going to have a ton of doubt, but just try to quiet that and then put the, put the mission in its place. And usually, usually it works out. Um, you know, these days I'm not sure even what the next project's even going to be. Um, mm-hmm. but I would think if I took on another one, I would have to apply some of the things we've learned over the years, but honestly, I would come at it just with eyes wide open. Like I didn't know anything at all. So I think that's probably the best way to approach it. Just try to mm. just try to stay calm and assume you know nothing. And whatever you do know will be in the back of your mind, but don't ever arrive thinking you know everything. Man, that's that's good. Stay calm and arrive with your, your eyes wide open. I think that's good <laughs> advice for I could think of a million things, but yeah, I think that um I've tried to myself live that out where just being genuine and, and asking questions. And, um, I think that that's what I've found that in working with some of the people that I work with with this podcast that really opens people up is when all, all of a sudden you're not trying, I'm not trying to just 
take a spot and go catch a fish that you've learned. I'm just genuinely asking questions because I want to learn about the thought process, the work ethic, all of that. I think that's really in life, whether it's in a job setting or on the water, in the woods, I think that's always going to be, uh, well honored. So, man, I appreciate so much the time and the stories. And of course we're going to have to do another one of these and, and dive deeper in. Yeah. Um, but man, thank you so much for giving us some time and joining us on the podcast. Well, I loved it. I mean, I love listening to the podcast. It's actually great to kind of, um, tune in, find people, you know, I mean, I can't, I mean, I love when you're listening to flip, I think I could hear the insects in the background, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's just, it's super cool, man. I love that this medium has come alive. I mean, my grandfather was a producer and he started off in radio. And as a kid, I was always fascinated to see it come out, um, to see podcasting. I'm, I'm love it. So I'm, thank you very much for letting me be a part of it. It's a pleasure. Absolutely. Have a great day. Thank you, sir. Thanks again for listening to The Captain's Collective. Please help us out by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast. We hope that you enjoy. This is The Captain's Collective. that has the stories to back it a life to be proud of it's a winchester life yeah baby six eight western a mule there baby right there tune in every tuesday at 7 p.m eastern on waypoint tv oh that's awesome don't miss thursdays with saltwater experience brought to you by golden boat lifts every thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m eastern on waypoint tv the destination for outdoor entertainment